Hello, podcasting world. Welcome back to the Core Consult RX podcast. And we're live on Instagram. What's going on, everybody? What's going on, Mr. Cole? I am doing great. How about you? Can't complain, man. Yeah. It's been uh been a minute since we've done one of these. I know. Again, I said this the last time we recorded. Yeah, at least a week and a half. Yeah, I think we've we're gonna lose all of our our listeners. Are we? Are we guys? What do you think? Probably not. Probably but, not. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, it's flu season. It's a crazy time. It's been a crazy couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Super busy. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, um, Doctor Corvino is actually uh, taking up a new job recently, right? That's what they tell me. Yeah. So uh, moving from the retail space into the clinical space. Yes. So I'm I have, jealous. I have moved uh, moved from community, if you will, retail, whatever you want to call it, um, pharmacy over to a more family medicine clinic type pharmacy. Um, I won't say the name just yet because I don't know if I'm allowed to, and I'll get back <laughs> to you. But uh, yeah, it's it's been pretty awesome, and so I'm spending some time staffing. Going to be spending some time actually seeing patients, doing diabetes education putting my CDE to work. There you go. And then uh, we got a lot of stuff kind of in the works, looking at uh, some specialty type situations and um, a lot of stuff. Very, very cool stuff. A lot of innovative. It's one of the most innovative, innovation-friendly organizations I've ever talked to. On the cutting edge. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Like anytime I've brought up ideas about things, they've jumped all over it and said that's a great idea. We should start looking into it. So it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So definitely, uh, definitely very excited about this next chapter. So it's going to give us all sorts of things to talk about. Yeah, hopefully. So when you text me and say, what do you want to talk about? I don't have to refer to my pharmacotherapy book and say, hmm. Pick something out of the table Just pick content. something out of the content. <laughs> That's right. Um, so like, I'm trying to think of some stuff that happened this week that I can kind of think of just to give you guys some insight. Um we had a uh, a UTI patient um, that was very symptomatic, and they were trying. They had started on, uh, I believe it was nitrofurantoin originally. The patient was just symptoms were getting worse, so they came back, and uh, it turns out that when they got the culture and sensitivity reports back, the patient was resistant. It was Klebsiella that was causing the infection, mm-hmm. and it was resistant to uh, pretty much every antibiotic they ran against, except for carbapenems. So. Um, we decided to go, uh, admit the person and down at MUSC and, uh, get treated with IV antibiotics. Apparently that was the only thing that would, would cut it. Um, it was pretty crazy to get that report back and see all those, uh, R's, R's. for resistance. <laughs> I need some S's. Yeah. We really needed some S's in our life. Not even Just any an I's. I. I'd be okay with an I. Not even an I. All R's. It was crazy. It was a bad bug. But, um, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And then, um, yeah, just some random, some random stuff. Got a question about H. pylori, which consequently enough, we're going oh, hey, talk to talk about, about that. tonight. I knew today. I studied that for a reason. And, uh, so got a question about that and it's, it's been cool They're getting to spend some time with a lot of PAs, mid-level providers, which I don't think you're supposed to call them that anymore. I don't think they like mid-level. No, I, I don't think they do. But if you look at, um, CMS's yeah. stuff, they used to call them mid-level. So I say it with all the, all due respect. There you go. And, uh, um, some of the physicians as well. And, uh, it's, it's been, it's been great. It's been a really cool experience so far. We'll see how it goes and hopefully it keeps, keeps staying great awesome what's what's on the um the forefront of things you guys want to do um i think the big thing is getting the diabetes education kind of rolling um you know one of my uh 
mentors and, you know, friends or, you know, just shining examples. that has been, you know, really important in my career, Dr. Uh, James Starrett. He's been down there and uh, at the clinic working and uh, it's something that he's kind of brought me in now to assist in, in what he's already started. And since he's kind of laid the groundwork and he's, who you know, really trained me uh, when it comes to diabetes education, it's kind of going to be a very smooth transition, I feel like. And getting to work with him from, you know, being... Uh, one of his students to now working with him is very cool. And, uh, you know, so diabetes education is the big one. Um, getting the MTM services up and running, kind of with all the Medicare, uh, Humana, and, you know, United Healthcare and all those different uh, Medicare uh, processing um, third parties. You know, MTM was big, big for them, their star ratings and all that. So we're going to be kind of getting that rolling. And then from there, uh, there's several little things in the works that I haven't uh, fully jumped on board with yet, but as soon as I kind of get the green light, we will be all about it. Awesome. What about you, man? So you got uh, some other stuff going on too besides just uh, the community pharmacy? Yeah, just uh, working with some diabetes patients. Mostly helping them with diet. I feel like that's all we ever talk about. But uh, Really? Yeah. It's that's, important. Um, I don't, have we ever talked about that program on the show? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe episode one, which Maybe. no one's ever really listened to? Or maybe it was that episode one that we didn't release, mm. and then a couple months later we recorded the real episode one. It might have been the pilot episode, yeah. the, the lost, the episode, lost if episode. You will. Yeah, hmm. I wonder so, if that's somewhere in the archives. It's probably not because I just cleared a bunch of stuff on my computer. Probably not. Maybe ten years down the road we'll see if we can find it. Maybe y'all probably won't not. Would listen to it. It was bad. Yeah. So uh, let's yeah let's tell tell them about that. We, yeah. we we're both involved with this program. Yeah, but. so it's, it's a program um, through the state the uh, insurance in the state and patients are able to meet with a pharmacist every one to three months, depending on how controlled their diabetes is. Um, because of that, they're able to get some of their medications and other diabetes supplies paid for, um, which is a little bit of an incentive for them. And also they get to meet with us, talk to us about medications, what's been going on. Um, usually we talk about more than just medications and diet, a lot of things other than just diabetes as well. Um, like, uh, sometimes their, their most, um, acute concern is that they've been taken off, been taken off a lot of their medications cause they have an acute kidney injury and their sugar creatinine's high. So we kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, but the focus is on diabetes and yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a lot yeah. of fun. It's a good program. And, uh, you know, I had one patient that came through there when I first met him, he was only a year older than me. All right, maybe you're younger than me actually, but um, we're around the same age, and uh, he had just gotten diagnosed with type two diabetes, and his A1C, I want to say, was like thirteen, <clears throat> four. He was way up there, uh, so he's put on you know metformin, two, you know prandial and basal insulin, um, and I think a uh, Victoza as well, and um, he radically changed his lifestyle and changed his diet completely. I mean, like the fastest I've ever seen anybody changes their their lifestyle. Um, started working out again, and like within nine months, probably this guy's A1C was down to like four something, and really? he, was, he was off all meds, <laughs> like completely off every medication he'd been part put on. All lifestyle stuff. All lifestyle, That's awesome. man. I mean, you know, originally with the help of the medications and the insulin and all that, but um, gave his pancreas a chance to kind of rest for a minute and get back to normal and now he's yeah he's off all meds and not even on metformin and he's his a1c is super low and it's awesome he's really healthy lost a bunch of weight so it's a, it's a cool program and it's a chance for us to kind of like sit down with the patients yeah. and, and spend much more than an office visit right time frame I and mean, we really have like an hour if we want to right um and, and realistically we 
there's no time limit. We could spend more time with them if we right. want to. We try to keep it to no more than an hour. But right. Talk to them as long as we want. Much more time than an office. Much more time than even in a pharmacy if they came up to you to ask about oh something. Oh, my gosh. For sure. So. Especially in, like, a community, like, retail setting. Uh-huh. A busy you one. You have, like, 30 yeah. seconds. You might not even behind. have 30 seconds. And you're behind. <laughs> right. Flu season. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good. I could have done seven flu shots while I was talking to yeah. you. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it's, which is depressing because a lot of pharmacists do want to be involved in patient care and, uh, can't because of the time constraints and all that so that's a that's a discussion for another another time i'll give you my rant about the (laughs) metrics and all that nonsense but um yeah so some cool stuff going on trying to keep it uh trying to keep it fresh so that we're not uh, always doing something different yeah definitely one thing i've been kind of shouting out for the last year or so on this podcast and others is you know, keeping up with content, staying current, staying, you know, continuing your own education uh, constantly, whether you're out of residency or school or whatever, and being ready to jump into the next thing. And so I felt very comfortable transitioning from, you know, community pharmacy setting, retail setting into uh, this new role that I have doing diabetes education, almost like an ambulatory care setting. Um, I felt very comfortable with that just because of all the time that I'd spent with you know, outside of work, um, continuing my education, volunteering, um, continuing to make sure that I progress as a pharmacist. So, um, trying to, you know, all the nonsense that I spit on the podcast and whatnot, trying to make sure I I live it out and don't sound like a hypocrite. It's all nonsense. That's all we do. That's right. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so huge, huge, uh, benefit to staying current with information. But all that being said, and you're already uh, doing it if you're listening to us. So yeah, good job. I mean, honestly, this is kudos to you. One of the best decisions it you've ever might made. be the best one, the <laughs> best commute you could possibly take ever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You probably listen to four of our episodes in a Charleston commute, honestly. Yeah, no kidding. It's bad. Traffic's gotten outrageous. It's terrible. Anyways, H. Pylori. Aren't we talking about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the na- very natural uh, progression right. into H. Pylori from traffic. We're great at transitioning. Uh, but yeah, H. Pylori, short for Helicobacter pylori. It's an organism that was more or less recently identified, um, probably back in the 80s is when it became well known. Um, a lot of people have it. Most people are probably infected with it around the world. They estimated about 50% of the global population has a chronic infection of H. pylori. Um, So does that matter is kind of the question. Um, Do all of those people need to be treated? The answer is no. Um, But what does it do? Uh, It can cause atrophic and even metaplastic changes in the stomach. Um, It also has a strong association with peptic ulcer disease. That's usually where you're going to hear about it. Um, but it can cause other issues as well, or it's more, I would say, loosely associated with other issues. It's not like proven, um, but it can be associated with an increased risk for GERD, iron deficiency, anemia, uh, skin diseases, rheumatologic conditions, um, even inflammation of like the coronary arteries uh, and certain cancers. So it's definitely not to be taken lightly. Uh, but usually if you're going to identify it, it's because somebody's symptomatic and they said, okay, well, maybe we should test for H. pylori, uh, which they can do through um, a fecal test. They can do it through a urea breath test. Um, but you're probably not going to be tested unless you have some sort of symptom where the doctor's like, hmm, it could be this, right? Yeah, and you know, I've heard... Uh... I've talked to patients that when they describe being on, you know, having H. pylori and they, they 
thinking they just had really bad GERD at, at first and, and, you know, I've asked them to describe like the pain they're having and they mm-hmm. said it basically feels like after they, um, when they eat or whatever, they feel like their end organs are, you know, they're, they're basically their organs are on fire is what they describe it as. It's really, really rough. Yeah. Um, very painful. And, you know, it's definitely something to consider long term. If you've been using PPIs for a long term, you're using them correctly and they're still not taking care of the problem, then you go into a GI specialist and letting them take into consideration that diagnosis. Um, yeah, the sign, I think the signs and symptoms are kind of funny because, like I said, a lot of people are asymptomatic. Um, but if you have symptoms, you know, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, like you said, heartburn, hunger in the morning is a symptom. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm hungry in the morning. I'm hungry in the morning also. Pretty nonspecific, but also halitosis. So it can actually cause bad breath. Mm. Which, you know, know a lot of people with bad breath. So. <laughs> Do you? Maybe that's that, interesting. Maybe they got you it. want to call out? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it afterwards. But, um,. Real, I guess real, this is a good opportunity too, since we're we brought them up and talking about PPIs. I thought you were going to say um, people with bad breath. No, but let's keep that in our back pocket. <laughs> but you know, when you have a patient that comes in and they're talking about a, a PPI and and saying that they're, you know, let's say they're t- taking omeprazole and it's it's not working. Um, one of the first things that before you just jump to, oh, it's probably H. pylori, <laughs> make that diagnosis. Um, one of the big things to ask patients about is how they're actually taking the PPI. Um, PPIs, the way that they, they really work is, you know, they have to be, they're, they're all pro drugs. And so when they're taken, they are, you know, absorbed and then they are looking for that ATPase, that proton pump that is um, producing those, those protons, those hydrogen molecules, um, hydrogen atoms rather that are going to cause the stomach to produce that, you know, the acidic environment. And so when those pumps are activated, they shut those pumps off and then those pumps are deactivated permanently until your body reproduces uh, more pumps. Um, the problem is, and a lot of people fall into this category of they've never really been educated on how to take a PPI, which it's pretty shocking how many people don't take it correctly, but they'll take it like with their dinner, for instance. In that case, you know, it's getting into the stomach and it's becoming activated in the stomach. It's not allowing the uh, PPI to actually be absorbed and and turn those pumps off before they're ever, um, when, as they become activated with the food. And so if you take it with your food, like right directly with a meal, most of this, the drug is going to get dissolved in the, in the stomach and never absorbed. Um, and then if you take it with, you know, for instance, if let's say you go to bed and, you know, because you have heartburn in the morning, you want to take it at bedtime. So when you wake up, your heartburn's not there. Um, you know, that's great in theory, but unfortunately the half-life of the drug of a PPI is only one to two hours. And so people always consider them 24-hour drugs, but that's only if they get to the site of action that they actually are meant to, to work at, and that's the proton pump. When they shut those pumps off, your body has to create new pumps, and that can take 24 hours or longer to produce those new pumps. And so if you take the PPI at bedtime and never actually shut those pumps off, you're going to bed and uh, the drug's long out of your system. By the time you wake up, heartburn's going to still be there. So ideally, you have to take the drug 30 minutes to an hour before a full meal so that you can allow the drug to get absorbed, and then you can actually shut those proton pumps off as they turn on to produce the, the stomach acid. Uh, they won't. Not every pump is activated with every meal, and so they do take a few days to really take effect. But uh, 
you know, taking it appropriately and then for a few days to kind of control the symptoms and then taking it, you know, taking it continuously for a few weeks or so to really suppress those acid producing pumps is the best way to, to go about taking a PPI just for regular GERD. And then if you have a patient that just cannot stick to a normal food schedule, a normal, uh, diet where they're eating all over the place for like a healthcare professional, for instance, who doesn't eat at the same time every day. Um, Dexalant, um, Dexalant Soprazole would be the go-to because that's the only one of the PPIs that is not, uh, you know, it's not predicated on taking it with a meal. You can take it in just whenever you want and it'll still shut the pump off even if it's in an inactive form. So. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago I did the whole 14 hour day without eating and it was not wise, but it was crazy. I blame flu shots, um, but the uh, even with the other ones, other than Dexalant, Ciprazole, uh, or Dexalant, um, a lot of times they'll say take it before even the biggest meal of the day because you know you might listen to us and say, okay, I'll tell them to take it before breakfast, and they eat a piece of toast and mm-hmm. coffee for breakfast. So uh, if if lunch or if dinner is their biggest meal, then you know tell them to take it before lunch or before dinner. Um, also, the reason I think people don't they have that conception of they just take it and they treat it like a Tums is because if you go to the OTC aisle, it just fascinates me. Nexium, Prilosec, Prevacid, all OTC. Mm-hmm. Crazy to me. Um, and they're right by the Tums. So Tums you just take or uh, Zantac you just take and very quickly it starts working. So um, if that's what they've been using, because usually you start out with the Tums, then they might associate it with that. But there is different dosing. That's really important for H. pylori because PPIs are a mainstay of therapy. Yes, absolutely. And so it wasn't what we were originally going to talk about, but thought I'd bring that up just because it is important. It's something you'll definitely see. That's so, relevant. Um, yeah. Where do you want to go? You want to just talk and go into some of the therapies we can use for H. pylori? Sure. I want to see if I had anything else, but I didn't. Other than it being... Um, it being transported through fecal oral route, which a lot are, but also oral to oral route. So stomach contents can be transmitted mouth to mouth, which sounds gross to me, but maybe a good reason not to drink after somebody. It's not ideal. No. All right. So where do you want to So they have the, the three um, FDA-approved triple therapies, which historically has been kind of the, the mainstays. Um those are omeprazole, so the PPI, with amoxicillin and clarithromycin, um, OAC, for 10 days. There's also bismuth subsalicylate, metronidazole, tetracycline, which they call BMT, for 14 days. Then there's lansoprazole, amoxicillin, and clarithromycin, which is LAC. They'll either do that for 10 or 14 days. Um, so historically, that's been kind of the go-tos, and they work, uh, but they're kind of falling out of favor, I would say, right? Yeah, so the clarithromycin-based treatments, um, one of the big things that we're running into is macrolide resistance kind of in general, but um, H. pylori in particular are becoming more uh, resistant to clarithromycin. um, And so that first-line therapy, that triple therapy, has kind of uh, fallen out of favor um, a little bit in regards to being like the first-line agent. Um, so some kind of you know risk factors that we would think about for H. pylori resistance, or I'm sorry, macrolide resistance would be if the person has had prior exposure to a macrolide, right. which obviously makes sense, and then knowing your local resistance rates. So if the local resistance rates are 15% or higher, um, then you're going to have a, high, a harder time eradicating the H. pylori with just using a triple therapy. 
Um, and so you would want to probably use the quadruple therapy that's not based on a macrolide if you have a patient like that. And if you work in a health system, you'll probably have access to some sort of antibiogram pretty easily, and uh, right. it'll have that information. Absolutely. Or just ask your pharmacist. Well, and when, and they may or may not have that information right. depending on what they know about the local resistance yeah, profiles. True. And I should say that um, generally the triple therapies um, cure rate is about 85 to 90%, but like he said, in those macrolide-resistant areas and um, for various other reasons, those rates are slowly declining. Yeah. So if you are going to use triple therapy, which, you know, again, was the mainstay for a while, um, triple therapy, um, did, you already said it has the PPI, the clotomycin, mm-hmm. and then the amoxicillin. One thing that is to, to consider, and I, I didn't know if you said this or not, so I'll repeat it just in case. Um, if the person has a penicillin allergy, did you mention that? No. Um, you can use metronidazole along with the clorithromycin, and that will still count as the uh, triple therapy. Um, it's done for 14 days, and the uh, PPI will be, you know, throughout the entire procedure to help uh, hopefully heal. If there's, Especially if there's an ulcer present, um, will help heal that area. Yeah, all of the, the triples are 10 to 14 days, but there are some seven-day therapies now. Yeah. And they've even looked at some five-day therapies. Um. If you are going to move to a quadruple therapy, which I actually would probably recommend if the person has insurance coverage and, and can, um, you know, is able to get it covered, um, it would be the, the, they call it the bismuth quadruple therapy. So you have a PPI still. Um, you also have the bismuth um, subsalicylate uh, derivative um, to protect the stomach as well. And then the two antibiotics that are involved uh, are tetracycline and metronidazole. Um, those together, now the problem with those two, um, you have to treat them four times a day. So that is definitely the downfall. So the pill burden is a lot higher with using the metronidazole and tetracycline. Um, the effectiveness though, you're not worried about the clozomycin resistance at all. And so it's something you don't even have to consider. And, uh, you know, definitely something to, to think about if you're going to uh, have a patient and you're, you're even slightly worried about um, resistance rates. However, you want to make sure that they're going to be adherent. Right. And like Mike said, the um, 2017 American College of Gastroenterology guidelines would say definitely consider that if you um, have previous macrolide exposure or if you're penicillin allergic. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else? Uh, there's definitely other first-line options as well. Um, there's triple antibiotic therapy along with the PPI. So mm-hmm. still using quad therapy, but this one consists of using a PPI, clarithromycin, amoxicillin, and metronidazole, all three of those antibiotics at the same time um, for 10 to 14 days is another option that you can use. Um, and then they have like a uh, sequential mm-hmm. therapy option, which is kind of interesting, where you do... Uh, PPI plus amoxicillin for five days, and then you switch and you do a clorithromycin plus metronidazole for an additional five days. So it's 10 days total, but five days of one antibiotic, 10 days of the other antibiotic um, or the combo antibiotic. So it's just a little confusing when yeah, you do the, the old bait and switch. I'm not a huge, huge fan of that, but um, I'm sure they're. Uh, yeah, there is a little bit of evidence for it. And so, you know, if you have already tried and failed therapy with like quad or something, it would be something to consider to maybe 
um, you know, messing with the kinetics a little bit of the drugs. Right. They also have the hybrid, the seven-day hybrid therapy, uh, which starts with a PPI and amoxicillin for seven days, followed by a PPI, amoxicillin, clarithromycin, and metronidazole. Um, and there's, there's various plays on these. I feel like, for the most part, your health system will have a guideline for this, um, mm. but not always, especially for an independent place. Um, so just, you know, check and see what they want. But like Mike said, sometimes it fails, um, and there are salvage treatments. Uh, generally, you want to try to avoid any of the previously used antibiotics if uh, possible. It can't always happen because, like you saw, there's a lot of overlay between the therapies. Um, but yeah, th- th- you would want to try something different, avoid the antibiotics. Um, and they have certain ones, like um, one preferred for patients who previously received first-line clarithromycin regimens, you might do a bismuth quadruple therapy or a levofloxacin uh, salvage regimen. They do have um, options with 10 to 14 days of levo triple therapy. So levo, a PPI, and amoxicillin. Or a patient who received a first-line bismuth quadruple therapy, you might go with a clarithromycin or a levo-based uh, salvage regimen. So a whole bunch of options. Um, a little more complicated than the simple three FDA-approved triple therapies. Um but there are a lot of options, and they all seem to work pretty well. Yeah, and there's even an option for um, using a PPI plus amoxicillin one gram twice a day plus um, rifabutin, uh, which is like a tuberculosis treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, That triple therapy uh, for 10 days has also been shown to eradicate um, H. pylori. Now, that would be considered salvage, so you would never typically think of starting somebody with that. But uh, it is an, an option um, to, uh, you know, usually we would only see that used in things like um, mycobacterium, avium complex, MAC, or some of those other uh, treatments like that are in patients that are immunocompromised. But that is a uh, anti-infective agent that is effective against H. pylori as well. So kind of interesting. I have no idea about cost on that one, though, which I'm, I'm actually trying to look at right now. Um I don't think it's all that pricey, but I don't know. Well, you do that. A big question for me really is when do you treat um, H. pylori? And I don't really have the answer to that. Um, like I said, if they're asymptomatic, you generally wouldn't have even tested for it. Um, I remember that I knew somebody who was having some issues with weight loss, and they weren't really sure why, and they ended up testing for H. pylori, um, and the doctor told them they had it. Um and he didn't really think that that's what it was, but he gave them kind of the option, like, well, here's here's the deal, here's what you have. I don't know if this is necessarily what the issue is. Do you want to treat it or not? So he kind of put that in the patient's hands. Um, obviously, if you have PUD um, or if you have significant GERD that is not being resolved, if you have anemia that he thinks, if so if it's any um, secondary morbidity that they think is being caused by the H. pylori, yeah, of course you would treat um but otherwise, there's so many people, it doesn't seem like it would be um, in the best interest of antibiotic resistance to treat everybody with H. pylori. So, yeah, and one thing that's interesting is the they do say that the clinician is going to test for it, that they should, if they are going to test, they should be ready to treat. Yeah. Um, so if it's something you suspect, but they're not, you shouldn't prophylactically just screen everybody, right. but if it is somebody that's coming up with symptoms, um, you know, or if somebody has, let's say, like early gastric cancer, 
um, would be one reason, an indication for testing somebody that has um, like a gastric um, mucosa associated lymphoid tissue lymphoma. Um, with, uh, the malt, the malt, yeah. <laughs> um, then that would be an in- indication. Um, or, you know, if somebody does have like a documented case of H. polar in the past, obviously if they're having the same symptoms again, they may not have been fully eradicated. So that would be a reason to test. Um, but yeah, I agree. Screening would be a little ridiculous. I didn't see much about uh, reinfection, but I suppose that that's a very real risk as easily as you could get infected. Right. Mm hmm. Um, one thing also too to be to consider would be um, if somebody has iron deficiency, because you know iron deficiency, especially if they are you're supplementing iron and you're still having deficiency, the um, H. pylori can actually interfere with the absorption of iron. And so if you have like a kind of unexplained iron deficiency, right. might be one that thing. would be something to consider. Um, trying to think of anything else like uh, well, with the PUD just because you're such uh, at such high risk generally with somebody if they have confirmed H. pylori I guess if you were testing then we just kind of reason that you would want to treat it but if not you do want to be careful with NSAIDs because those patients are going to be at higher risk for GI bleeds and aspirin of course yeah the um the other thing I thought was kind of interesting is like you mentioned the urea breath test earlier as mm-hmm. one of the screening uh, potentials of that, but um, the reason why I guess that's even a possibility is the H. pylori themselves, you know, they attach to those gastric epithelial cells and they bind to like this specific um, receptor, but they actually um, hydrolyze like the gastric luminal urea to form this ammonia, um, which basically neutralizes the gastric acid and it forms like this protective cloud around them. Um, which is one of the ways that they're able to remain safe and then uh, penetrate that gastric mucus layer and uh, cause the ulcer in the first place. And so um, because it's giving off that um, that that byproduct, that urea breath test is able to kind of uh, signal that and see where um, where it's coming from. So it's very specific for H. pylori. And the fecal antigen test is actually pretty specific and sensitive. Um, 98% specific actually and 94% sensitive for uh, positive results obtained. There's also an H. pylori serology uh, which has pretty good specificity and sensitivity. Um, useful for newly infected patients but not as good for follow-up treated patients so I guess there's a reference to the reinfection um, but I hear about the breath test a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know H. pylori um, definitely can uh, cause gastric ulcers, but a lot of times they're more commonly found in uh, the duodenum. <clears throat> duodenum. So duodenal mm-hmm. ulcers are more uh, commonly seen with H. pylori. Now, if it's an NSAID-induced ulcer, then it's probably going to be a gastric ulcer. But um, you know, one of the things about the duodenal ulcer that, and because it's a high risk of H. pylori infection causing it, if the patient is saying that the pain is worse at night, the, the epigastric pain is worse at night, um, or if it occurs you know, after like several hours after a meal. And a lot of times they'll even talk about the pain being relieved by eating. Um, that's more indicative of a duodenal ulcer, which could, would probably be caused from an H. pylori infection um, versus a patient that's having uh, epigastric pain when they eat. Um, it's probably more in the, the gastric ulcer, you know, causing that. And right. that can be from taking aspirin on an empty stomach every single day, <laughs> which I've, I have seen. 
pop, oh, yeah. pop people an do aspirin because it's delicious. Oh, yeah. Literally tastes like candy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I said that uh, 50% of people are infected and it is highly associated with peptic ulcer disease. So H. pylori is probably going to be found in about 90% of pa- patients with PUD, yeah. um, but less than 15% of infected persons may actually have PUD. So um, H. pylori doesn't necessarily mean PUD, but if you have PUD, you probably had pre-existing H. pylori. Yep. So, yeah, H. pylori. Fascinating. What's up? I first heard about that from my mom, actually. What? I don't know. She got to looking through, and she's like, did you know everybody has this H. pylori? And I'm like, this is like early in pharmacy school. Mm. That was the first time. So, yeah, we do. <laughs> I probably have it, too. That's why I take amoxicillin every single day. Sure <laughs> every day of my life. It. Every day, prophylactically treating myself. Speaking of infectious organisms, have you heard of the hookworms in the South from like the late 17 early 1800s i have not so apparently there was a hookworm or um, there still is in a lot of um developing countries but in the american south there was a hookworm um that you could obtain through stepping on it um and it would go from your feet into your lungs you would cough it up into your mouth swallow it and then it would live in your um, stomach and it was very clearly associated with um like stunted growth and um uh, lower IQ, and they think that it's why, where Southerners got the the whole um, stigma for being kind of you know slow and hmm. and Southern like. <laughs> Southern like, <laughs> yeah. that's weird. And they there was this whole campaign in the early 1900s by the Rockefeller administration to um, eradicate the hookworms. Hmm. Were they selling the uh, antidote? <laughs> yeah, they're basically selling the antidote. <laughs> Those Northerners. Interesting. Yeah. Anyways. Hey, you guys know how you're real dumb down there? <laughs> well, we got the perfect we solution. We can fix you. That's interesting. Where did you uh, see that at? A podcast. Hmm. Yeah. We should do some research and find out if that's like legit. I, I think it's legit. It still goes. It's still. It's still a thing. Hmm. Oh, oh. The, but the whole like Southerners being. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about. That. I don't know if that's legit. But the hookworm thing is very legit. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I believe the hookworm. I'm just yeah. thinking about like you know because the, the stigma. Are yeah. We uh, are we also shorter than. What the, it, uh, well, apparently that it caused because it caused an iron deficiency because mm. you could have like up to 100 worms living inside you at any one given time sucking a teaspoon of blood a day what a bunch of jerks i know so apparently iron deficiency and uh it caused issues like that hmm. stunted growth interesting so southerners might be shorter you heard it here first folks <laughs> yeah that's the first instead one of, to bring it up the podcast that actually <laughs> is reported on it <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, what uh, what podcast was that from? Stuff you should know. Stuff you should know. I'll give know. them a shout out, there but they go. have enough. I was gonna say I don't think they need our help. <laughs> they don't need our help. <laughs> Not even a little bit. No, they're awesome though. I love the podcast. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. All right, man. Anything else? It's good to get an episode knocked out. We I gotta know. make sure we get caught up and have a lot more uh, posted. Yeah, than, we'll pump them out. That was out. a good one. Part of our GI suite. Yeah. Uh, we've done. That we have. Well, we've done Crohn's. Yeah, we did. Or Crone. Who knows. But yeah. uh, one or the other. One of the two. Is that the only one? Could be plural, could could be, could be singular. Not. Yeah. I think that was it. That was the only abdominal one. So good. We got two GI ones. Good. We have a GI suite. Yeah, I, <laughs> a GI playlist. We, if sh- you will. we should never try to relive the podcast on the episode because we can never remember. We always look complete morons. <laughs> no idea what, what we have recorded. we talked about. I have no we have a podcast. Clue. <laughs> <laughs> that was us back then. Oh my gosh. Last week. Yeah. So we'll get back on the uh the 
the, the trail of actually putting them out more than once every month <laughs> like we've done the last couple. So I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Um, appreciate all the new listeners we have. I've noticed the numbers have been going up um, pretty drastically. So that's been awesome. Thank you guys so much. Um, if you do like the podcast and, you know, regardless wherever you listen to it, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, wherever, um, we would definitely appreciate if you hit subscribe um, or if you like the video version on Facebook Watch or on YouTube, we would definitely like a subscribe or a share. That'd be awesome. And then if you have time, we would absolutely love to hear your feedback, get a rating from you um, on iTunes or wherever else allows you rating, mostly iTunes. And uh, that would really help us out as well. So thank you guys so much for the support, and we will see you next time. Later.